Hello and welcome. You've landed on the Municipal Art Society podcast, a series of conversations about New York City with people who've been watching it closely. We celebrate it here. We geek out on history a little bit and we think about what the city is becoming, too. I'm your host, Audrey Gray, and I'm joined today by two fine art photographers whose work I'm going to bet you'll recognize. James and Carla Murray are the authors of Storefront, a book of over 300 film photographs that captured New York's laundromats, delis, dive bars, bodegas, all these incredible vintage facades so unique and so New York. Storefront wasn't the Murray's first book, but when it hit back in 2008, so many of those small businesses were being forced out of business already. And the book sparked a really incredible conversation about character versus conformity that continues to this day. Now, this autumn, the Murray's have a new book coming out, Storefront 2, A History Preserved. So this story is going on and there's so much to talk about. James and Carla, thank you for making time to be here. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. We're going to go deep into um, the issue uh, uh, and the, the main issue your work has brought up for this town. But I really wanted to hear a little bit about you first. Um, now, you all have been working together for a long time um, and not just photography, but also really preserving oral history um, in New York City. How did you find each other and begin this work? Well, we've been married for over 21 years now. And at first, we really weren't working together. But um, as, as time went on, we always had a passion for photography. We decided to just go for it. And um, that's what we do professionally as well now. Yeah, we got, um, we got married uh, six years after we met. And we got our marriage license right at City Hall. And so we've been in the city ever since, together, working together. And you live on the Lower East Side now? Right, in the East Village, yes. Yeah, and how long have you been there? Um, same apartment now for, God, almost 20, yeah, 20, 20 years. 20 years, yeah. So you both had trained as photographers, yes? At some point, you decide you're going to start canvassing all five boroughs of this city, and you started with graffiti. That was your first subject. And what, are we in the 90s at that point? Like, what year is that? Yeah, that was definitely in the 90s. We started documenting more of, um, when you think of graffiti, there's there's many different forms. But we were documenting more like the mural art form. So it was the large scale walls and productions that were being done by the graffiti artists in the city. Because at the time, there was a big transition where um, 1989 was like the time when the last train had run um, in New York City, you know, covered with graffiti. So the graffiti artists were transitioning from having their work on the trains to the walls um, and the rooftops of the city. But they were also painting in a lot of underground spots because it was still, um, you know, there was a big eradication effort uh, at the time going on, um, especially by Giuliani, to, to get rid of the graffiti on the walls. So we started documenting it because we saw it disappearing and we saw it as like a, just a true uh, raw art form, you know, full of passion, energy, creativity, color. <laughs> yeah. Once the trains were taken away, um, the murals moved to, like Carla said, these big walls, like on the side of bodegas or neighborhood shops. And then that stability that a wall offers um, gave them the possibilities to really expand, like and in, in involve uh, tremendous backgrounds and in uh, colors and, and... And characters. Yeah, the, the characters and, and everything really just took off at that time. 
So that book that came out as a result of years of shooting graffiti all over uh, the boroughs was Broken Windows. Um, and then how did that lead into this enormous storefront project? Well, what happened was with the Broken Windows book, we kept on going back to the same places oftentimes because the artists didn't, they didn't have a lot of places where they could paint their work freely. So they would often repaint the same walls. So it wasn't walls really, I mean, there were some in our own neighborhood, but it was really in the outer boroughs that we were concentrating on, on the Bronx and Brooklyn, Queens. So we would often go back to the same spot, like after maybe, you know, a few weeks or a few months, just to check to see what new artwork would be created there. And when we did that, we started noticing like, hey, what, what happened to that great little store with that old sign that we got a, you know, a pack of gum at? Uh, where, where did it go? Like it was there the last time we were here and now it's gone. And somehow when the stores closed, we felt like the neighborhood changed. Like there was just something you know, missing. Um, it just didn't feel the same. It didn't have the same look. It didn't have the same feel. And so we started documenting, you know, we'd turn around from shooting the graffiti and then we would just shoot the storefront too. So that's how it evolved from graffiti to storefront. Plus, Graffiti being a, a letter-based like art form, because it's really all about the letter. It's about the name. I mean, that's where, you know, graffiti's roots are is that they always put up their name. I mean, it wasn't always, I mean, most of the time it wasn't their real name. It was a tag, you know, just like a, a pseudonym that they would use, but it's a letter-based style. So we were always interested like in fonts and the lettering, like on the storefronts, there are a lot of hand-painted signs and, you know, neon signs with interesting lettering. So we just saw that similarity with that letter-based style of, of graffiti to the stores. And we had been interviewing uh, the artists themselves to get the oral histories of their history, and which is just crazy sometimes. And so we took that idea and we're like, hey, why don't we start talking to these owners of the stores? And that's what really made the project take off. That was what really got us hooked. Yeah, that's what's so fascinating to me is that you all are not only fine art photographers doing incredibly high quality, you know, film shots, but you're also oral historians now. You're interviewing people, you're getting quotes, you're finding out some incredible stories. I mean, the way you're listening to New York the last decade or so is fascinating. We had originally started trying to video um, the owners. The video is okay with, with a lot of the graffiti artists as long as they wore a mask or or a bandana over their face. But when we started trying to video the owners, it was funny because it totally ruined any spontaneity for us. They would say, oh, wait, wait, I want to go home and change, or, um, oh, I want to shave. Can I go shave? Or or let me come back tomorrow with, with nicer clothes. And it kind of ruined the spontaneity. And yeah, see, that's why we do podcasts. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. So we quickly abandoned the idea of, of videoing it and documenting it that way. So it just brought, like, at the time, I mean, again, there was no digital. We just had a um, one of those little micro cassette recorders. So, you know, I would tell them that I was taping it, but then it would be out of view and it, it's so tiny, like they would just forget about it. So if they were self-conscious about it t being taped, that that would be quickly out the window and they would just open up and they had so many things Yeah, to we share. would spend like four sometimes four or five hours with these guys. And, and it was really, they would feed us and, and we got to know their whole families. Their families now stay in touch with us. Could you tell us the story of um, the one on Cody Island and the origins of the, the Wonder Wheel? Oh, sure. That, that, this is such a great story because 
when we interviewed the owner of the Wonder Wheel, oh, we wanted to find out, you know, what 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 was the history behind it? We knew it was, you know, iconic to New York, but we didn't realize how his family had gotten involved with it. And um, he told us that his father had bought the Wonder Wheel like as a gift to his wife, like a, a ring so big um, that she would a never lose, and to to show her, you know, how Aww. much he loved her. And it honestly brought tears to my eyes to hear that because it was just, you know, so amazing and like such a heartwarming story and they lovingly maintain that family i mean they literally when the season is over they take that wonder wheel apart and it's a they, ferris wheel for people who don't know right beautiful vintage perfectly running yeah i mean they've never had any accidents or um any problems with with the um ferris wheel and you know yeah, it's interesting because the cars there's stationary cars and then there's cars that move on a track to swing and rotate, and it's really something to see. I always um, go for those ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's really uh, fun. And it's so special because when you're when you're up there, you you get this beautiful view of you know all, all of Coney Island, and you know on a clear day you can um, you know see pretty far. So it's it's very special to you know to be on those that you know the Ferris wheel. But it was such a wonderful story, and that was just like. One of these little gems, I mean, we found out so many interesting facts. I mean, it was, that's what honestly kept us going with the project because it it was a lot of time and a lot of effort and we were really doing it for ourselves. Like we honestly never intended to make a book or anything. We were just documenting it because we found the story so fascinating and the, the photos themselves. And it was like, kind of like a treasure hunt in a way. I mean, we would go to a neighborhood and... Then we would just start walking around like we really, I mean, I would call them like photo safaris. Right. Yeah. I would love to say that we are organized about it, but we, we were not. We would just pick a neighborhood and then we would just walk and just start walking every street. And I mean, sometimes we would skip a street just because we got so entranced by like by something on one side of the street. Oftentimes we would forget to look at the other side of the street. I mean, yeah. You know, uh, like I said, I wish we could say we were we were better organized uh, because we probably missed many stores by not being so organized that, you know, since closed and, and we didn't photograph. Yeah, but. I wanted to say this is a very odd treasure hunt that you were on because the treasure is disappearing as you go. Uh, of that original storefront book that came out like 08, how many of those storefronts are, are gone now? Well, the, there's 325 stores in that uh, first publication, and when we wrote the introduction in 2008, one-third of the f- stores that we had photographed had already disappeared. Because, By the time, before the book was even out. Right, in the 10 years that it took us to make the book yeah. and, and, you know, take all the photographs um, and compile all the interviews and transcribe them, we had already lost a third, but now, here in 2015, it's two-thirds. So it's quite an enormous number. I mean, it's it's shocking, honestly, because we just never thought, you know, when we were starting to document these. I mean, yes, the reason when we started to document them in the first place is that we saw that they were they were closing and they were disappearing, but it, not at that pace. Like we we weren't rushing around, but now it's literally a race against time. I mean, if we don't we see something and we don't have our camera, I mean. That's really an impossibility because we we carry around our camera <laughs> everywhere we go now. Yeah. But sometimes you literally cannot take the picture. I mean, sometimes there's a big truck, you know, like a moving truck or, or something like that parked in the store, in front of the storefront. Sometimes 
you know, we'll stick around. We'll stick around for a couple of hours, like waiting for well, the truck on, to move. On McDougal Street in the village that it's so busy uh, with tourists. We spent like eight hours there one day just running up and down. And if a delivery truck or a UPS truck would move or or a car or something, um, we would just run back and forth and we spent the whole day there. Uh, we suffered for that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, it, what a payoff. Because um, we should tell people that you not only do just like the individual storefront, you do these like sort of panoramic composites. What do you call them? Yeah, they're they're panoramics and um, they're composites of like, it's up to 60 frames of di of film. So you can see as you fold out the pages of the book, you can see an entire block. We got crazy with it. Like I would wear a uh, Con Ed vest and a helmet and a Smart. clipboard and we would block off lanes of traffic just <laughs> with our... With Have our, you admitted this publicly before? Um, probably not. <laughs> but yeah, we, were, we were nuts. Yeah, we were, we were crazy. And, um, you know, I remember standing out in Second Avenue and just waving cars over. And, and yeah, we're going to need you to move, sir. We're going to need you to move. Yeah. yeah. There's reasons why we love these places. They're so unique. Um, you you all know probably better than anyone in this town right now why so many of these are closing. Can you tell us, like, from your perspective? And I know it's all so many times it's they raise their rent, but there's some there's some other reasons too. I would love to hear your perspective on why are we losing so many independent small businesses right now. A broad stroke would be. Um Carla and I found out very early on that if the store owner didn't own the business, if they didn't own the building, um, then they're in jeopardy right off the bat um, because of rising uh, rents and, and real estate was going through the roof when we started this. Um, that, was the, that was the main um, factor. Right. They would tell us, you know, because we would ask them, hey, you know, one of the questions we would ask is, oh, how long have you been in business? And uh, we got to ask them outright, do you own the building? Because we saw early on that that they would say, oh, no, we don't own the building. And, you know, when my grandfather, it was like a 30 year lease or, you know, something really, really long. I mean, that was like, you know, things were done like on a handshake then. I mean, there wasn't even sometimes written things. It was like a... And we're talking about like early 1900s for a lot of these, right? Sure. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, it was, it was no problem because even if they didn't own the building, oh, you know, oh, that guy knows us and we know the family and, and it's no, we're never going to go away. But then that changed. Um... And when they didn't own the building, they, they were already nervous. Like they would tell us, oh, we don't know how many years um, more we can stay in our, in, you know, in this building because we don't own it. And, you know, the, uh, the building just got sold and, you know, they're going to probably raise our rent. And it's not like a little raise, right? They're like doubling the rent sometimes. Uh, even more than that. I mean, yeah. Colony Music, which was, uh, we photographed for a New York Knights book. I mean, what was that? Like a... Tenfold or twelvefold. I mean, it was some ridiculous, ridiculous um, increase. And the sad part is, is that many of the photos that we took, like in the um, late '90s, early 2000s, of these places, once the store like was, you know, they closed because the they didn't get their lease renewed or you know they couldn't afford the new rent. The place is still empty. You yeah, know, that's to so this frustrating day. when you, we, we, you know, as people who have loved these, you know, restaurants or small businesses or laundromats or whatever, you see them shut down and then you're like, well, something obviously big budget will come and replace it. And then it doesn't. And right. why is that? Why like, does it sit there empty? The, the back of our book had Katie's Candy 
um, which was one of our favorite stores, and and that was shut down. She was she was a character. She was a big, um, heavy set woman. She had like a twelve pack a day cigarette type of voice. And we went there, and while we were interviewing her, all the neighbors would come by. Is everything okay, Katie? How you doing, Katie? She was like the star of that little block, and this was in um, Bed Stuy. Tompkins and Tompkins in Bed Stuy, and she had she was the last store in New York selling penny candy. The sad story is that um, all the the neighborhood was becoming hip, and they tried to convert her building into luxury condos, and they forced her out. And um, the right, and that was that was in two thousand seven. She was she was forced out, and the the there's two sad things. First of all, if you go to the, the building today, because that was that was in our storefront book, it's still empty. I mean, the condo project never materialized. So it, it's, it's not a, a luxury condo at all. It's still the same old building it was originally. So because that was right at the time, 2007 is like right when things yeah, started the going crisis. south. Yeah. Exactly. As far as like, you know, this this craze with the real estate prices and, and you know, so the whatever that landlord's hope for you know making a new bed sty right there on on Tompkins by the um, corner of Myrtle did didn't materialize. When we started um, the first thing that struck us was the the pressures they face with realty in in the rent. Then as we got more and more involved um, interviewing them, we found all these little problems. Like uh, one that springs to mind is uh, there was a Polish meat store, Karawicki, in our neighborhood on First Avenue in. They had been, they hung the cured smoked meats in the window for forever, for like, a, you know, and the city came by and said, no, you can't do that anymore. You can't do us a, um, what, an E. coli breakout or, or something. And, and they told him he, he couldn't hang his meat in the window or display it outside a freezer case. And his freezer case was located in the basement. So people would come in, he'd say, Jesus, people come in, they, they say, what what are you going out of business? Because his whole his whole business Where's was built meat? on yeah. on sight and smell and and the aroma of the of the of the cured smoked meats and and he actually went out of business soon thereafter because it it just looked like he was out of business. So you you would you would the butchers had tremendous stories to tell us. Um, all the store owners had these pressures that we were never even aware of. And, you mentioned and, parking as one of them, right? Definitely um, parking problems. I mean, it comes up time and time again, especially in the interviews in this in our new book, Storefront 2, because they took away all the metered um, spots in the city as far as like, you know, there's no more like put a quarter in and then, um, you know, just run into a store and go get your stuff. There's muni meters everywhere now. And with the muni meters, like there's different there's different times, like one like one block, it can be an hour limit. And then right perpendicular, like you just go around the corner and then you can park, you can park for two hours. And one of the store owners, it was Ridgewood um, carpeting and flooring. He told us, oh, you know, in this neighborhood, a lot of people have cars. And especially when they're picking up a carpet and when they're picking up flooring, they come in their car. So they, they need their car. You know, he's like, oh, of course I deliver, but that's, you know. This is in Queens. A lot of people have cars. It's not like Manhattan. So he's like, I need the, I need parking spots. He's like, okay, I have parking spots right on the, in front of my store and on the side of my store. But when they installed the muni meters in the front of my store is an hour regulation. So you can pay and you can only park for an hour. But on the side of his store, because he is right on the corner, it's a two hour parking. So he's had to cut 
couple of customers come by, park in front of the store, but the muni meter right in front of the store was not working. So they would go to the corner and pay at the muni meter around the corner. But around the corner, it's two hours. So they would pay for two hours, not knowing that they could only park for an hour in front of a store. So they actually paid for the spot, but then they would get a ticket because they went beyond the hour. And you go through that, you're not going to come back to that store. Exactly. Yeah. That's yeah, what he would tell us. Yeah. He's like, once somebody gets, I mean, whether it's, you know, the depends on the neighborhood, like the different, there's different pricing for tickets for depending on the, the neighborhood. But I mean, I think at the time he said it was like $55. That was a long time ago. So the price is probably raised as far as what the fine is now. But he's like, somebody gets a $55 ticket. Trust me, they're not coming back here anymore. They're going to go to Costco and they're going to go because that's what's in Queens now is there's Costco's and there's Home Depot's, you know, where you can get carpeting and flooring. He's like, they're going to go there because there's a parking lot. So when when you lose like a little, um, you know, coffee shop or a little, you know, stationery and toy store um, and it's got it or even a, like a mom pop sort of drug store and it's replaced by a, a big box retailer. There there is no sense of community The the people that work behind the counter generally do not know your name. I mean, they they didn't grow up like. You know, you weren't in a baby carriage with your mom being brought into the store and now you're wheeling your own baby carriage. That, that, that doesn't happen at, at, you know, these places. So that sense of community and that sense of like that the store owner knows who you are. I mean, I, I mean, I know uh, Cup and Saucer Luncheonette um, down on Canal Street. Uh, I love they, that place. They told us that back in the day they had so many like old customers would come in that they didn't even have to order you know, they would see them crossing the street and they would start pouring the coffee and putting in the sugar just like the customer wanted. They knew exactly who that person was. And, you know, there are bars that'll do that for you, too. <laughs> Precisely. Yeah. And your and drink just appears. That that yeah. doesn't you know, that doesn't exist at, um, you know, like at a chain restaurant or right or or something like that yeah. so what do you say to people who who say look this is the oldest story in new york city it's been changing things have been turning over every few years you know since you know for 300 years now like that's just how it works here um what do you say to an argument like that this is just progress you know we know that new york changes i mean yeah, yeah we've always been excited by the evolution of the city but the thing we're seeing now with the streetscapes in, in these mom and pop stores is it it's taking place at such a rate and at such a scale um, that, it, you know, it's not we're we're waiting to see where this is going to head. You know, can it can the East Village sustain a bank on every corner? Um, you know, we don't think so. Um, could there be yeah. three CVSs in, in, in four blocks, you know, or, or a Dwayne Reed and a, and a CVS across the street from each other where there used to be a nice, like you mentioned, a bar or, or coffee shop or, or meat store. Um, you know, that, that's what troubles us. I think um, where, you know, again, we, we like the evolution of the city in, in where it takes us, but um, what's going on now is, is, is um, scary. Do you, have you found, um, in working on this new book that's about to come out, did you find anything new that was interesting, really well-made, well-crafted? I'm thinking about, um, you know, so many places in Brooklyn where, um, we've got, you know, new generations of people doing, putting up their own storefronts, trying to make even manufacture, um, products there again. 
Um, I'm just wondering if you saw any of that sort of encouraging signs of, you know, people who are actually turning their storefronts into something unique again. Definitely. I mean, most of the businesses that we are documenting for the book um, are older businesses that, you know, have been around for a long time. But that doesn't mean that's all we photograph. We're still interested in the new evolution of stores that are that are taking place. Like you said, in um, many parts of Brooklyn, that's true. I mean, there's a lot of beautiful independent stores like in, in Cobble Hill and, um, that I can think of off the bat that have very interesting products. But again, the problem is, is the rent. Um, you know, whether they can make it uh yeah. with with the rents being in the regulations right yeah. so yeah. much and on all these so-called hidden taxes you know because it's it's not only the parking and the illuminated sign fee and and this and that i mean oftentimes it's also taxes the tax on the building itself goes up when you're leasing a, a space like on the ground floor or whatever it is a lot of times it's built into your lease that you're paying a portion of the property tax so that's another issue that a lot of the store owners brought up to us is that when the property tax goes up, which it generally has been um, going up, that they're hit with these bigger bills as well. They're the ones absorbing it. So there's a lot of things we're hopeful because we see these new um, creative stores, a knitting store. You know, we were, we were so happy to see like a little knitting store. We're like, oh, this is this is fantastic. Or another jewelry store where they're handcrafting jewelry. Um, doing everything by hand. It's it's exciting to see young people um, opening up in, in these um, small little shops, but we, we hope that they can, you know, survive. You know, they're not going to do it without customers. They need the customers. I mean, you know, we understand things are sold on the internet, but not in most of these stores. They need your walk-in business, and it's so important. So to us, it's a celebration of I mean, yes, we've lost many of the stores, but we want to celebrate the ones that are still there so people can go there. That's why we gave the address. We're not trying to hide their lo location. We want people to go to the store and check it out for themselves. If they like the story that they read, hey, go there and talk to the owner. You know, yeah. ask no, them totally. questions. I'm going to take your new book as a giant to-do list. I'm just going <laughs> to work my, I'm going to eat my way through. <laughs> I love it. Hey, um, we, we want to uh, finish up the podcast by asking you guys some sort of lightning round questions. Are you game for that? Sure. Yeah. All right, here we go. So I just have uh, five questions. I want to hear your perspective uh, on this specifically. Um, tell us, what's your fondest hope for New York City? Okay, well, that would be that it retains its character, like the uniqueness as, as far as the neighborhoods are concerned. So it doesn't become like homogenized with just, um, you know, big box store after big box store, someplace where, you know, you can go to um, the middle of the country and you'll feel like it looks the same exact as it does in New York. We don't want that to happen. We want New York to retain its, you know, individual character, especially with the neighborhoods. That's what New York is known for, that it has many different neighborhoods and each of the neighborhoods are different. You know, we don't want everything all being the same. Next question. What's your greatest fear for New York right now? I would say the, the greatest fear um, in a similar vein is that 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 sense of um, community and individuality will be lost because in many neighborhoods, um, things have changed so rapidly and so quickly that they 
you know, they are losing their individuality. So we, we hope that that does not happen. All right, James, what is one place you'd like to see preserved for all time? Oh, it'd have to be the Wonder Wheel. Um, you know, we, we make trips out to Coney Island just to stare at it. And, and that, would, that would really, I'd like to see that exist forever. Um, even, even despite what's going on in Coney Island, um, it has to have the Wonder Wheel to be Coney Island and to be Brooklyn. All right. Last question, um, because this is hard, might be hard for you guys because you're working all the time. I know every day. But if you had a day off, no cameras, um, <laughs> can I take your camera away? I just want you to have a true day off fantasy. What would you do with a free day today in New York City? No work. We would um, probably just uh, plant ourselves in a neighborhood and just start walking. Uh, that's what we enjoy the most. Um, visiting the little shops, seeing if the owner's around, um, and just poking around a neighborhood that we're unfamiliar with. I agree. That sounds that sounds perfect. Oh, real New Yorkers. Um, well, thank you so much for your time. Hey, tell us how people can get a hold of this new book and find out more about all your work and the other books you, you've done too. Well, you can um, visit our website, um, www.james, J-A-M-E-S, and, you know, just spell out the word A-N-D, Carla, K-A-R-L-A, Murray, M-U-R-R-A-Y.com. And it's kind of long, but it is our name. So James and Carla Murray.com. And we're also, you know, on Facebook and, and Twitter and Instagram at James and Carla. So we'll hunt you down. We'll find you on your site. And I've also heard you do some tours for the Municipal Arts Society. Yes, um, Municipal Art Society, we've done some tours, of walking tours of the East Village where we go visit stores and even sample some food items when, whenever possible. And we're definitely planning on doing another walking tour with the Municipal Art Society, walking around um, the shops of Greenwich Village, and we'll be announcing that in the near future. Oh, great. So let me tell people how to find out more about that, too, um, and about the Municipal Art Society. It's very easy. The site is mas.org mas.org thanks so much james and carla for being here today perfect oh thank you thank you and thank you for listening to our podcast we'll do it again soon 